0: following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore for our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. Now we are going to this morning start a little Advent series to take us through the next few weeks to Christmas, focusing around the arrival of Jesus into the world. So this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. You can grab your Bibles. I'm going to grab mine. We're going to look at the first couple of chapters of Matthew's gospel over the next few weeks uh, as Matthew tells the story of Jesus. And so find your way to Matthew chapter 1, whether you've got the print Bible or you've got on your device, and stop when you get to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It's just to the right of that blank page in the middle of your Bible. It's got nothing on it. Um, Just go right and you arrive, Matthew chapter 1. When you get there, you will get a rude shock because you will find what you expect to find in Matthew chapter 1 because it's the beginning of the New Testament. Isn't this supposed to be the story of Jesus' birth? Like that's what we think we're getting at the beginning of the New Testament. Instead, we are confronted by this list of 42 names and we get to talk today about this wonderful thing called a genealogy. We get to talk about Jesus' family tree. Yep, who's excited that they came to church this morning? This whole list of names, I mean, this is generally agreed to be the most boring part of the whole Bible. I know what happens when you get to a genealogy in the Bible if you're reading through something and you get to one of these, what do you do? Come on, you skip it. That's right, at least we're honest with each other. It's confess time. You skip it, and then you feel good because you've got a whole chapter covered. Like, well, I'm making progress, making progress now. Didn't need that chapter, nothing there, move on, just a list of names. It's just such and such, the father of such and such, the father of such and such. Or if you've got the old King James Bible, so-and-so, begat, so-and-so, begat, so-and-so, begat, so-and-so, on it goes. But this is a genealogy. Um, And it will be no surprise to you to hear me say that, in fact, these are really important in the Bible, these genealogies actually mean something, and we don't want to jump over them too quickly because they tell us things that are really important. This genealogy in particular tells us really important things about who Jesus is and why he came into the world and what his work involved and the type of person, the type of Messiah that he was. And so we are going to deep dive into this genealogy this morning. Now, I have spared one of you from reading this passage publicly, because I just didn't think I could find anyone who would be keen to do it. But what, I, what we've discovered is that somebody actually put this to music, this genealogy. That just shows you there's people in the world with too much time on their hands. But somebody has written a song about the genealogy of Matthew. So we're going to watch it, this little genealogy song. Hopefully you can see it or at least hear it. Let's give this a go, Rob.
1: Abraham had Isaac, Isaac he had Jacob, Jacob he had Judah in his kin. Well, then Perez and Zerah came from Judah's woman Tamar. Perez he brought Hezron up and then came Aram, then Amminadab, then Nashan, who was then the dad of Salmon, who with Rahab fathered Boaz. Ruth she married Boaz. See, he had David, who we know as king. David, he had Solomon, by dead Uriah's wife. Solomon, well, you all know him. He had good old Rehoboam, followed by Abijah, who had Asa. Asa had Jehoshaphat, had Joram, had Isaiah, who had Jotham, then Ahaz, then Hezekiah. Manasseh, who had Amon, who was man? Who was father of a good boy named Josiah Who grandfathered Jehoiakim Who caused the Babylonian captivity Because he was a liar Then he had Shealtiel Who begat Zerubbabel Who had Abiud Who had Eliakim Eliakim had Azar, who had Zadok, who had Achim. Achim was the father of Eliab then. He had Eliezer, who had Nathan, who had Jacob. Listen very closely, I don't want to sing this twice. Jacob was the father of Joseph, husband of Mary, mother
0: of Christ bad, eh? Yeah. So there you go, the genealogy of Jesus according to Matthew. Now, let's just step back uh, from the genealogy and pick it up right at the beginning. Have a look at the very first verse, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, The very first two, let's learn a little bit of Greek here. The very first two words in this verse in Greek are these, biblos geneseos. Biblos geneseos. And literally, that means the book of Genesis. Isn't that great? Like you get the beginning of the New Testament, first two words are the book of Genesis. Don't you love the Bible? And the way it's put together, that you at, here at the beginning of the New Testament, we're going back to the beginning of the Old Testament. And Matthew is saying to us, this is a beginning, but it's beginning again. And this is a new beginning. And so this is not just about one man coming into the world. This is a whole new beginning. This is a new Genesis. This is a new beginning for creation. It's a new beginning for the whole world. You can see the kind of picture that Matthew is painting here. So we're going back to Genesis in this new beginning now that revolves around Jesus. This is the genesis or the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Now, when you see the word Messiah, you want to immediately think king. That's the implication, king. So when we see Jesus Messiah, we should think King Jesus. It's a designation of his royal status. Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. David's a really important person in this genealogy. He's mentioned twice, you might note. Uh, And he is, Jesus is also the son of Abraham. So Matthew's going right back and saying, Abraham, those promises God made to him way back in Genesis chapter 12, uh, Jesus is connected back to that. He is fulfilling that. So the first thing that we, even before we get into the genealogy itself, what we're learning is that Jesus did not just come from nowhere. He didn't just drop out of heaven. Sometimes we imagine like Jesus just parachuted down to earth just he was born he did a few miracles he died on the cross for our sins. But Jesus stepped into the flow of a story. This is so important. It's not just like he came any time, any place. He stepped into this grand narrative that had already been going on back through David, back to Abraham, back to creation itself. Jesus comes within the flow of that story, and he comes to move the story toward its great climax. So we've got to see Jesus in the context of his story. That's the whole point of the genealogy. This is the story of Jesus. So you're getting a bit of a glimpse. Now, we get into the technical stuff here. I think the best way to understand the genealogy itself is to compare it to another genealogy, you'll be pleased to know. There is also a genealogy of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 3. If you want to keep a finger on one and have a look at the other in Luke chapter 3, you could do that. What I've tried to do here, Rob, if you go to the next slide, is I don't know how well you can see this, but I've tried to line them up for you. It's a bit tricky to do it when you're reading the passages because Matthew's genealogy goes forward to Jesus. Luke's genealogy goes backwards from Jesus. So it's hard to compare. But what I've done here is just put them both in chronological order so you can see the comparison. Now, if you look at these two lists here, and it doesn't matter if you can't see it well, I'll talk you through it. The red names are the names that Matthew and Luke's genealogy have in common. So common to both lists. The names in black are where they are different. Matthew has different names in his genealogy of Jesus to Luke's genealogy of Jesus. And when you look at that, what is really striking is there are huge differences between these genealogies. Like you would expect, if this is someone's family tree, that it's bas- if you've got two versions of it, it's basically going to be the same. But these are wildly different. Matthew includes a whole lot of names, Luke doesn't include. Luke includes a whole lot of names, Matthew doesn't include. So what's going on here? Well, if you're a real Bible nerd, you can do a deep dive into this, and I'm happy to have that conversation. But let me just give you the most likely theory. Luke is probably giving us a natural biological ancestry of Jesus, So Luke is tracing it by Jesus' natural-born father, Joseph, his natural-born father, his natural father, on and on it goes. So strictly biological genealogy. What Matthew is doing is giving us a royal lineage. That's the difference. Now, I think the giveaway here is the fact that the first third of these genealogies are the same, because this was a time when there were no kings, There were no kings in Israel, and so Matthew and Luke, they're just following it. They're in lockstep from Abraham down to David, and then it's when you get to David that things diverge. Are you loving this? At David, then what happens is Matthew goes down through Solomon, David's son, the king, whereas Luke goes down through another one of David's sons, Nathan, and he follows that line. And so then Luke is following a different line that doesn't involve the kings, whereas Matthew, and you might recognize some of these names from the royal series, goes down through the kings, David and Solomon and Rehoboam and on and on. And you've got some familiar names there, Uzziah and Asa and Ahaz and Manasseh and so on. These were the kings of Israel. And so Matthew's following through the kings, even when, you might be asking the question, what about when the monarchy finished? Well, even then, Matthew is still following the lineage of kings even though there was not a functioning monarchy. So obviously there were still records of the line of kings. Matthew somehow had access to it. And he continues that line even when there was no longer a functioning monarchy in Israel. And what that, the differences then, of course, are that sometimes you could have a person with a natural-born son, but that son may not become the king. The person who became the king may be, if that son died, for example, it may be a relative. Or the king may marry another woman and her son might become the king. And so Matthew's lineage follows the person who would become the king after this person may not always strictly be their biological son. That's why you get the differences. Are you following this? Yeah, good stuff, isn't it? All right, I know there's not a lot to apply to your life yet. All right, that is coming. But that's the difference between Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy. What does that tell us? Matthew is showing us this royal lineage. That's why he emphasizes David, by the way. David, the great king of kings. And he wants to show us that when we get to Jesus, Jesus comes as the one true king. That's the point. He's a descendant of all of these kings who came before him. And he has a particular pedigree as the son of David, He's the promised son. God made these promises to David the one of David's ancestors, descendants, would sit on his throne and his kingdom would be eternal. And Matthew is saying, this is the one. I'm going to show you through the family tree. Jesus has the rightful claim to David's throne. Look at his ancestry. He is the one who has the right to sit on David's throne, on Israel's throne, on the throne of the universe. That's what Matthew's building towards. That's why he calls Jesus the Messiah, means the king. That's why Jesus is the son of David. He is the one who's going to restore the fallen monarchy of David. That's why Matthew follows the royal line, the line of the monarchy, all the way down to Jesus. He is making it unmistakably clear. That Jesus has come as the true and rightful King, and that's what we celebrate at Christmas, right? I mean, this is fundamental to our confession. Jesus has come as the King of Kings. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let the earth receive her King, right? This is who Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and that's what Matthew's genealogy is telling us. That's what the first Christians believed that Jesus was the King, and they believed that he wasn't just the king of their hearts, but he was the king of the whole world. This is really important. Sometimes we talk about Jesus the king, we just kind of talk about him like, yeah, Jesus is the king of my heart. He's the king of my life. He's the king of my soul. Well, that's true, but it's not true enough, is it? Jesus is the king regardless of what you do with him. He's the king of all. And this is what got those first century Christians in so much trouble. One writer puts it this way. He says, The Roman Emperor Nero did not throw a whole lot of Christians to the lions because they claimed that Jesus was the king of their hearts. Right? if, If Christians had just gone around saying that, no one would have cared. If a whole lot of Christians had just said, Well, Jesus is Lord of my heart, the Romans wouldn't have cared. Herod wouldn't have cared. Life would have gone on as normal. It's because these Christians had the audacity to walk around saying, Jesus is king of my life and he's the king of your life. And he's the king over all. And he has authority over every earthly power, including yours, Caesar. That's the kind of thing that gets you thrown in jail, like Paul. That's the kind of thing that gets you put on a cross, like Jesus. That's the kind of thing that gets you thrown to the lions, like a whole lot of Christians. When you start making this claim that Jesus is Lord of all, he is king of kings, that's what Christians, our brothers and sisters in the first century, were willing to claim. And that is what brought them into so much confrontation with the authorities. Of course, Herod didn't like hearing that because he thought he was the king of the Jews. Of course, Caesar didn't like hearing that because he thought he was the divine son of God and the king of all. But these Christians, they weren't afraid to say it. And I think that's a lesson for us today, isn't it? That Advent is a time to make this confession. Jesus is King of Kings. In the face of every other claim to authority, in the face of every other claim to power, in the face of every other earthly ruler and throne, we declare that Jesus is the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Absolute authority, absolute supremacy, absolute sovereignty over all people, including those who don't recognize them and are hostile to him and all the rest. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's our confession at Christmas time. That's a big claim, isn't it? It's a bit more than just Jesus is Lord of my heart. You start there, but the Advent story takes us much, much deeper and much broader. Jesus is the King of Kings. That's a big call. It was then, it is now. So Matthew's showing us that Jesus is the King. His whole genealogy is structured that way. But here is the beauty of it. Matthew is not only describing Jesus as a king. He is also showing us what kind of king Jesus is. Now, have a look at this. I love this. In this genealogy, there are four women. Five if you include Mary. And just have a look who they are. Verse 3, you have a mention of Tamar. This is a woman who disguised herself as a prostitute so she could sleep with her father-in-law. This is quite a morally questionable person, Tamar. A little bit further on, you have Rahab. Rahab, we know as a prostitute, and also a Canaanite. So she was part of this people who were God's enemies to start with. And she was also a prostitute, a very morally questionable woman. And then in verse 5 as well, you have Ruth. Now, Ruth was was a good person, but she was also a non-Israelite. She was a Moabite, so she's not even part of God's chosen people. And then you come down to verse 6, and you have this mention of Uriah's wife. Anyone know who she was? Bathsheba, yeah, you might know her story from the infamous story of David and Bathsheba. Now, by no fault of her own, she was taken advantage of by, by David and manipulated to be used to his, fulfill his desires. So you have Bathsheba in the middle of the story. Now, you think about it. Matthew did not need to mention any of those women. They're not part of the royal lineage. He didn't have to include them, but he's made a point of including them. What do you think he's saying? What do you think he's, he's hinting at Can you start to get a sense of what kind of king Jesus might be? You have these people here who are outsiders. Even the very fact that women are included in a genealogy. In this time and place, it wouldn't have happened, usually. You you usually just had the males, but these women are mentioned here. Some of them morally questionable people, and yet Matthew puts them right in the middle of this genealogy. And then alongside that, you've got a bunch of other people who are really unsavory characters. I mean, even the guys in this genealogy, some of them, I mean, you remember this from the royal series, right? Just think about some of the kings. Rehoboam, he managed to split the whole kingdom in half. Ahaz, he was a total idolater, led Israel into idolatry. Manasseh, such an evil king that he sacrificed his own children in the fire. I mean, this is just, these people are there's some awful people. These are not good, kind, compassionate, considerate people. Some of them. There's some good ones in there. But some of them were real ratbags. Some of them are real scoundrels. And yet, Matthew doesn't hold back. He just puts all these names in there. He includes these women in this genealogy. And I think Matthew is saying to us, very subtly, Jesus is the king who's come for everyone. He's not just come for the righteous. He's not just come for the good ones. He's come for the lost sheep. He's come for the ones who have wandered away. He's come for the outsiders. He's come for the morally suspicious. He's come for the dropouts and the rejects and the misfits and the scoundrels and the ratbags and the outcasts. Jesus has come for all of those people. And his arms are open wide to everybody. I think Matthew, in the way that he writes this genealogy, is telling us, here's Jesus, he's just so full of compassion, he's welcoming everybody. He's welcoming everybody to his table. That's the kind of king that he's going to be. So when Jesus goes around on earth doing things like hanging out with prostitutes, should we be surprised? Well, Matthew wasn't. You know, when Jesus is hanging out with a bunch of drunks, like we're told that he did, when Jesus is touching the leper, those who were considered totally unclean, when he's embracing people who were non-Jewish, when he's allowing a woman to draw him water from a well, which would have been highly morally questionable in those days. When Jesus just does these things, just walks across every social, cultural taboo without even caring about it. I think Matthew was probably right there going, yeah, well, it was always there, wasn't it? It was always in his family tree. It was always going to happen this way because just look at who he's related to. Just look at who he's got in his papa. You know, if you've got some notorious criminal in your family tree, you're in good company. So did Jesus. He had all sorts of people. But Matthew, I think, was probably having a bit of a laugh and saying, boy, you just look at Jesus' family tree. It was always going to come to this, wasn't it? Because this is who he is and this is his family. And so when Jesus now is incarnated in the world, these are exactly the people that he's drawn to. These are exactly the people he just moves with such love. It's like he's drawn to the, the ones who are the outsiders. He's drawn to the ones who are on the margins. He's not drawn to the, to the elites, and the powerful, although they were never excluded. But he's drawn to those who suffer, and he's drawn to the sinners, those who have dug their own holes really deep. But his heart is just so full of love towards every and any kind of person because that is the king that Jesus is. He's the king of all. He's the royal king, the true lord of the whole world, but he is a king whose heart is so unbelievably full of compassion that all he wants to do is pour his love, unconditional love upon all people. And he is particularly drawn to those who are on the outside and who don't have the power and the resources and the morality to be able to make life work for themselves. Jesus just moves towards them. That's the kind of king he is. That's the kind of king we're celebrating at Advent. That's the kind of king that Christmas is all about. King of kings, but the king who was gentle and humble and lowly. And that's not just who he was then, was it? That's not just something Jesus did for 33 years and then went back to being some different kind of person. The Bible says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if that's what Jesus did then, isn't that what Jesus is doing now? Is Jesus the same king? He's still got the same heart. And even today, he's moving towards all people, and his arms are open to everybody, regardless of stories and backgrounds and whatever kind of situations we've been in. His arms are open so wide, every single person is invited to have a seat at his table. That's the kind of king Jesus is. I was talking this week to um, Dominique Foster, and uh, her family's part of our church community. Dave's here this morning, and uh, her mother Rowena, of course, passed away a couple of months ago. And Dom gave me permission to share a little bit of her story with you today. Uh, She grew up in a pretty stable Christian home, and then she got to about 14, and she started in on some pretty heavy substance abuse. Started smoking, started drinking, started on drugs. At first, some pretty low-level drugs. And then over the next few years, it just spiraled for her. And she just got herself into a deeper and deeper cycle of addiction. The drugs got harder and harder and harder. And the drinking got heavier and heavier and heavier. And she started to get herself into some toxic relationships and got involved with people who were violent, people who were abusive, people who were bullies. She got caught up in gang activity And her mental health deteriorated massively during that time, and she became really entrenched in depression. And her physical health followed the same path, just went downhill. There were times she came close to losing her life. And she just kept digging the hole deeper and deeper and deeper. It was on this path of total self-destruction. She kept digging the hole for herself, just rebelling against everything, against everyone, against every good thing in her life. And then, 2017, she got invited by Mickey from our church community to a cap release group. It's run by another church on the North Shore. So this is a group, a recovery group for addicts of all kinds. And she went along to this group and she found love there and she found acceptance. She found people who were just open to hearing her story and the couple running the group in particular just welcomed her with open arms and they listened and she found some hope And she heard about the God who loved her. She remembered this from back in the days of of, um, growing up with her family and the Christian upbringing she had had. But she heard again of this God who was there and who was willing to take her back and who offered her love and who offered her grace and who offered her hope and offered her freedom. But she still couldn't. At that point, she still couldn't see a way out of it. And she was still so deep in that hole. She knew she needed help. She knew she was pretty powerless. But at that point in 2017, she still couldn't go for more than a few hours without a substance in her body. So she got to 2020, she had a massive drug overdose and on the back of that her mum Rowena suggested that she might like to try church again, at which Dom was pretty horrified I think initially, but ended up going along and found it a really positive time and was pretty impacted. She heard again about this God who was waiting for her, this God who was gently calling her and who was patient and who was there. In that same year, 2020, she uh, was booked into a residential drug rehabilitation program, eight-month live-in rehab program in a home that was run by another church here on the North Shore. And through that program, through a really difficult detox, through a lot of support, people around her, her family, and the people in the program, she finally managed to turn a corner, 13th of April, 2020, It's the last time that she touched drugs or alcohol. And during that year, she not only turned away from substance abuse, she turned her heart towards the God who had been calling her all those years and opened up her life to Him and finally placed her life into the arms of Jesus. And it wasn't the way she tells her story. It wasn't anything spectacular. It wasn't great, big, dramatic stuff. It was just a journey of leaning into God's presence and just discovering him as the God who had been there all along, and discovering that unconditional love of Jesus, and so today, I believe it's 965 days that Dom has been clean and sober, an amazing, amazing journey, and it's incredible testimony to her family that has stood with her and supported her through some incredible low times during that, and it's still hard for Dom, I mean, I talked to her this week, the day I was talking to her was a hard day. And she, you know, the loss of her mum this year has been brutally hard for Dom. She's angry, she's hurt, she's confused about all of that and she's mad at God right now. But you know what? She's still clinging to him in the midst of all that. She's mad at him and she's still clinging to him at the same time. And as I talked to her, she had someone else there right with her who's also supporting her. She's clinging to the friends that she's got and she's in a church community and she's still taking step by step forward even though it's tough and it's hard and it's messy. But she's come to know Jesus as the king whose arms are open to everybody, she's come to know Jesus as the one whose heart is just so full of compassion, who just moves towards any and every person, doesn't matter their story, doesn't matter their background, and she has just found that unconditional love in the arms of Jesus. That's who he is. That's who he is to every single one of us. And it doesn't matter your story, it'll be very different to Dom's story, but whatever your background and whatever your situation. Jesus is the king who opens his arms of love to you. And as he does that, you know, I think about Jesus, and I think it in some ways it kind of reflects his ancestor King David and some of what David did. Not always. David got up to some terrible things too. But there's a wonderful little story with David where David asked, once he became king, he asked um, somebody, is there anyone left from Saul's household that I could show kindness to? Saul was David's adversary. Saul wanted to kill him. But after Saul died, David still turned around and said, is there anyone from Saul's family that I could show kindness to? And somebody said, yeah, yeah, Saul has this grandson, Mephibosheth. But he's, he's lame in both feet. Mephibosheth was disabled, couldn't walk. And David said, bring him to me. And so Mephibosheth comes. I mean, you can imagine like someone like Mephibosheth is never used to being in the presence of the king. He has never in a million years thought that he would have an audience with King David. And yet he is invited into the presence of the king. And as he sits there, David says, Mephibosheth, from this day on, you're going to eat at my table. And I want you to dine every night with me. And it happened. From that time on, Mephibosheth, and you can imagine someone carrying him and placing him on the seat there. And he ate the king's food at the king's table for the rest of his life. And I can't help but think, man, when David did that, it was a little sign of the king who was to come, wasn't it? It was like back then, God just gave us a glimpse. This is the coming king. And the son of David, the king of kings, he's going to be just like that. He's the king who invites every one of us. Because the reality is, friends, we're all Mephibosheth, aren't we? Like We can think someone's here and someone's here and this person's struggling, this person's fine. We are all broken. We are all messed up. We are all outcasts in God's eyes, and yet Jesus the king says, I want you to come eat at my table. I love you. I welcome you. I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to condemn you. I just want you to come and eat at my table. That's our king. He opens his arms to every single one of us, every single one of you today. And then as those who are loved by this king, then the invitation is for us to turn around and say, well, if this is the king I worship, If that's who Jesus is, if that's his heart, he's gentle and he's lowly and he's humble. Then shouldn't I try and have that same heart towards others? Like if I worship this God, if I name him as the King of Kings, shouldn't I ask him to give me a little bit more of his heart for other people in my life and other people around me? Because this is ultimately the way that Jesus shows his love to others is through his people. That's how it was for Dom. That's often how it is for us. There's a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. She was a lecturer at Syracuse University in the United States for many years, lectured in English, lectured in women's studies, and she identified as a lesbian. She was deeply embedded in the LGBTQ community there at the university, and she hated Christians. It was the one thing. She just hated Christians, hated their God, hated Christians because of their, quote, politics of hatred towards people like me. And she despised them. And she wrote against them. She wrote articles dismissing Christianity, articles against various aspects of the Christian faith. She wrote one article where she just slammed Promise Keepers, the Christian organization for men, and she wrote a critical scathing piece about Promise Keepers. And as a result of that article, she got a whole lot of mail. And she talks about, writes about how she got this mail and she would read each letter and she would put it into one of two uh, trays. There was the hate mail, and there was the fan mail. And she'd look at these letters. It's like, well, this is hate mail, probably from Christians, um, attacking her for what she's attacked. And then another letter would be fan mail, and commending her for what she'd stood against. And so she just read these letters. And then she got to a letter that didn't seem like it fitted in either category. Because it wasn't hateful, but it wasn't fan mail either, and it was a letter from a guy named Ken, who was a pastor, and a lot of the letter was just asking questions, it was asking, so what do you believe, and where do your beliefs come from, and what sort of values are behind all this, and she didn't know what to do with the letter, so it started a dialogue with Ken, and she started writing back, and he would write back, and they had this conversation, And that led to an invitation to Ken and his wife's home for dinner. And so Rosaria Butterfield went to have dinner with Ken and and his wife. And she found in that situation total absence of judgment, total lack of anything, no condemnation, and no sense that Ken and his wife were somehow polluting themselves by having her in their home. They just listened. And they loved her. And they asked questions. And that led to Rosaria inviting Ken and his wife to meet some of her friends. In her world, some friends that were very unlike Ken and his wife. And there was this strange, unlikely friendship that developed between Rosaria and this this couple. And this conversation that went on and on. And eventually, Rosaria Butterfield started reading the Bible. Eventually, firstly, with, with a kind of critical attitude. But as she read it, she just became more and more captured by what she was reading and more and more convinced that what she was reading was true. And by the end of that time, she couldn't deny the truth of what the Bible was talking about and the picture it painted of who Jesus was, and she ended up committing her life to Christ. In the face of all the opposition, she said as a result of that decision, she lost everything but the dog. Just lost the amount of friends she lost, colleagues, the loss for her, you can imagine, was extreme and profound. But she turned her heart towards Jesus because of his incredible love for her. And I'll tell you what, she still loves LGBTQIA plus people with a passion and a heart and a love. She loves them now with the love of Jesus. And she is now a Christian author and speaker and travels talking to people about the love of Jesus, the love that has confronted her and found her. Even when she was probably the most unlikely kind of convert you could ever think of, God got a hold of her heart. She discovered the kind of Jesus that Matthew's talking about. She discovered this kind of king, the king whose arms are open to every person. And in her story, she discovered Jesus because other Christians were willing to hold back and not judge her, were willing not to condemn her and not send her hate mail, but just to love her and accept her and point her to Jesus. And that's our job. That's what it means for us to embody Jesus, the King of Kings, and to embody and and receive His Spirit and express His love in the world. is not to go around judging people and condemning them and criticizing them and telling them how wrong they are. I know there's a place for the truth. I know we've got to stand, but I tell you what, the world has heard the message of what's wrong. They've heard the message of judgment time and time and time and time again. What they need to hear is the message of grace. What they need to hear is the love of Jesus and the unconditional acceptance of God for every person. And I just encourage you to look around. People in your life, people in your world, people over the next few weeks, that maybe you could express a little bit of that same unconditional love too. Maybe people who have dug themselves into a hole, yeah, maybe it's their own bad decisions, but instead of standing at arm's length and just judging that person because, well, they've are just they just created their own problems, how about treating them the way Jesus treated them? Of just loving them and moving towards them with compassion. Didn't he move towards you when you dug a hole for yourself in life? Wasn't he long-suffering with you? Imagine if He'd walked out on you as quickly as you want to walk away from other people. God hung in there with you and He asks you to hang in there with other people. Instead of condemning, why don't you love and find some people around you that you can just show a little bit of the love of Jesus, the love of our King too, in some practical way over the next few weeks. So as we journey towards Advent, in all the busyness, I know you've got a lot going on in your lives, but let's free up our minds and hearts to recognize Jesus as the King of kings. Let's celebrate him as the true Messiah, Son of David, who has come into the world. But let's always, always, always keep in our minds and our hearts the kind of King that Jesus is. Let's never just have some picture of Jesus where he is high and exalted without also seeing him as humble humble and lowly, and loving the broken. And that's all of us, by the way. And may we seek just in our own small little ways and conversations and questions to show the same heart of our King Jesus to those around us this Advent season. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to thank you that you came and found us when we were never looking for you. You came running after us when we were running in the opposite direction. And God, you have hung in there with us and you've been so faithful so many times that we have wanted to walk away. We thank you, God, that this is who you are. We thank you that in this funny list of names, in this genealogy, that we've seen today something of your heart in the most unlikely part of the Bible. But oh God, we thank you that we just see and hear something of who you are. We see you, Jesus, you're the king, and you are here. And your arms are open to enfold us into your love and into your mercy. Oh God, we just thank you that you are always so near to us and that it, it really delights you to be near to us like that. It's not a, thank you, God, it's not a burden for you to do this. It doesn't trouble you. This is what you love. Jesus, this is your very heart, is to move towards us in our deepest need. So Jesus, would you fill us afresh just with, just with a fresh love and awareness of your mercy in our lives? And would you just place on our hearts now, just in the quiet moment, God, just place a name, place a face that you are nudging us to walk towards this week or next week or the week after. God, just someone that you're wanting us to show some kindness to, to bless in some way and maybe to point them towards you, Jesus, but just to perhaps listen just to be present with them. God, just bring them to our minds now. And we just want to say, God, that, yeah, even though we feel like there's a lot of excuses and reasons we can't do that, we just want to say, Jesus, if this is who you are and if this is what you're nudging us towards, then we want to go and we want to walk and we want to move and we want to bless and we want to serve because you've served us. So we thank you, Jesus, that you are the king of kings and the king of love, the king of hearts, the King Whose Arms are open to us. We thank you, Jesus. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our Teaching Resource Ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shore.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09. 415 0455. Thank you for listening.